Exodus chapter 4. Then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. The Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? He said, A staff. And he said, Throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent, and Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, Put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand. That they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Again the Lord said to him, Put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, Put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. If they will not believe even these two signs, or listen to your voice, you shall take some of the water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground, and the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. Mark chapter 2 verse 23. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did? When he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. Again he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. This is the word of the Lord. One of the elements that we exhibit week by week in our sermons here at Grace Christian Fellowship is a desire to present 
a Christian hermeneutic. That is a Christian approach to reading the Bible. And if you were not here back about three or four years ago, which many of you weren't, uh, for a series that we had, which is often spoken of and referred to called Christ in the Old Testament, you may not be aware of this, although it's really woven into every one of our sermons, that the Old Testament is not a series of stories which are to be moralized. And what do I mean by moralized? I mean, for example, with David and Goliath, the story is usually presented in a Sunday school-ish fashion, Nothing wrong with teaching our children the things of God, but the approach in modern Sunday schooling is often lacking. And it's presented, that story is presented like this. David was a young and insignificant person, but he trusted God. And so when the time came, when Goliath announced his challenge, David was able to meet that challenge. So you ought to be like David, and you ought to slay the giants in your life. As long as you trust in God, you can do it. That's moralizing. The problem is that's not the gospel at all. David was able to do that because he was graced by the Holy Spirit to be for us a prophetic and poetic, if you will, foreshadowing or shadow or type pointing to Christ. It's not enough that you hear, I ought to be like David. You ought to realize that David pointed forward to the greater David, namely Jesus Christ, the son of David, who defeated the enemies that you could not defeat. See, we put ourselves in the position of the hero in the story. And we say, oh, we're going to be like the hero. But what we have to understand is when we read the story of David and Goliath, we're not David, we're the Israelites on the sidelines cowering in fear. And so the point being that Jesus, the greater David, the son of David, comes and slays the enemies that we could not, namely Satan, sin, and ultimately death, the most important one. Even if you made some spiritual reform, even for a few years, by reason of strength and and willpower, you ultimately still would die. And so Jesus Christ is the one who defeats the, the giants in the land, and trusting in him, his victory becomes your victory. That's the point at the end of the battle, right? David kills Goliath, and then after that, the people of God are liberated from their fear, seeing God's deliverance being given to David, and then they chase down the rest of the Philistines as the Philistines run. And so that really is what I mean between moralizing and Christocentric exposition. That is a Christ-centered approach to the Old Testament. I was reading a quote from a theologian I love and follow named Peter Lightheart this week, and he said, and paraphrasing, he said that if you read the Old Testament and you never get to Christ, then that is not Christian exposition. And it, it, it actually kind of stung me, even though I agree with him, it, it caught me off guard to the severity of the claim. What it means is if you read the Old Testament, if you read the Bible, if you interact with the stories of the Old Covenant scriptures and you never get to Christ, then you're not even integrating the scriptures as they were written by the author of life, the Holy Spirit. And so this book is a wonderful example of stories that are created, written, were historically accurate, and then as time moves forward, their true meaning is revealed. It's not as if God rewrote history, it's just that the kernel and seed of the idea, although present, was veiled. That was one of the big things that we talked about in our series in Hebrews, that God spoke in various times and various ways, but now he has spoken clearly through his son. 
And so this idea is what we're going to use in our engagement with Exodus and Mark. These passages, I believe, are intentionally linked. That is, Mark, in his authoring of his gospel, saw, by by the aid of the Holy Spirit, events in the life of Christ and realized that Christ was the fulfillment that Moses, uh, the fulfillment of the prophecy Moses gave. Moses, before he departed, he said to the people of God, after me will arise a prophet from among you who will be like me. And so Jesus is not just a greater David, Jesus is also ultimately the greater Moses, the one who delivers his people and brings them into the land. I'm convinced that Jesus is doing this intentionally in this passage. These aren't just circumstantially linked. Jesus was very intentional, and I think Mark understood this. So I want to look at five elements today of the passage. First, I want to talk about what Moses was doing with his signs of authority. Why were they given to him, and what was their purpose? How did, they, how did Moses understand his commission and role? And how did that work its way out, first working to the Israelites or the Hebrews, and then working to the Egyptians? I want to look after that at Jesus's ministry and how he was doing a very similar thing to what Moses was doing in his day. After this, I want to look at the Sabbath rest that Christ brings us into. Again, this was referred to in the, in the um, time in Hebrews. But here Christ presents a dramatic retelling or a, re, uh, a representation of the Sabbath and restoring the right interpretation of the law of God and dismantling the hypocritical, legalistic system that the Pharisees had constructed for themselves. I want to look at Jesus' actions in uh, calling forth the man with the withered hand as an intentional invocation of Moses. That is, Christ sees an opportunity following the, the, the actions of the Father. Jesus said that I only do what I see my Father doing. And as God is presenting this story, he's presenting this account before the people of Israel, Jesus understands by the Spirit of God and begins to integrate an event that happened in the Old Testament, which the Pharisees knew quite well, and he heals this man in order to say something about who he is. And then finally, I want to look at the fact that, uh, as I mentioned in the prelude, that we are not often the hero in the story. I'll just leave it at that for for now. So Moses is called by God while tending the flock of Jethro in the wilderness. Moses had killed an Egyptian, went out into the wilderness, and had basically been sent into exile, if you will. It's a a foreshadowing of the exile narratives in the passage. Uh, And and Jesus uh, later will pick up this same theme as we see at the beginning of Mark. But Moses is in a wilderness, He goes out into the wilderness before the people of God go out into the wilderness through the Exodus. Moses is directed by God first to bring good news to the Hebrew people before delivering them and before rotting the plagues. When we read this passage, perhaps when you were hearing it as it was read this morning, you may have remembered, oh yes, Moses does these things, and then you recognize that he did them before the Egyptians. But I want you to look at the context, which we'll examine in, in good detail here, that Moses is given these signs not to ultimately bring them against Egypt, although he will use two of them against Egypt. He brings these signs to deliver good news to the people of Israel, the Hebrews. 
The Hebrews had completely forgotten their God. They had been in bondage for over 10 generations, and they basically did not know him. And in fact, when Moses comes and says, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is sending me to deliver you, they then ask, what is his name? If you know someone, you know, know their name. And so the Hebrews are presented as a people who are not only physically in bondage, physically oppressed, but they have, through the waywardness of slavery, through the oppression that they took year after year, generation after generation, they had become ignorant to their own history. Now, they knew enough through the oral traditions that they would have recognized the words Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but they had to ask Moses his name, and Moses rightly declares it to him. So Moses' question, while he's being commissioned to Yahweh, then is not for signs of authority to convince the Egyptians, but rather proofs that would accomplish a belief in the people of God. You see, the problem is not always just the evil empire. This is a deeply relevant idea, although it's allegorical and I won't spend much time here. But the problem is not just the government. You see, there is a popular reformation that needs to take place before the Hebrews are to be delivered. And we ultimately see, during their waywardness in the, in the wilderness, their hardness of heart is compounded. See, the, the people who were hard of heart weren't just the Egyptians. They were also the Hebrews. So Yahweh gives Moses' first sign for this exact reason to convince the Hebrews. I want to look at verse 1 and verse 5. Of course, 2 through 4 don't contradict this, but just highlighting verse 1 and verse 5. Moses answered, but behold, they will not believe me. The question is, what is the relative pronoun they resolving to? Is he talking about Pharaoh and Pharaoh's court? Or is he talking about the Hebrews? Verse 5 makes it clear that they may believe the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has appeared to you. So Yahweh himself declares, Moses first says, what if, the, what if the Hebrews don't believe me, based on the context from the prior chapter? And then in verse 5, Yahweh himself says that they may believe. That is their God, the God of their fathers. So after the first sign of the rod of authority, which is given, which we'll examine in a little bit of detail, not much, but a little, after that first sign is given, this second sign is given, which is really the connecting idea to the Gospel of Mark. Verse 6, again, the Lord said to Moses, put your hand inside your cloak, and he put his hand inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Verse 7, then God said, put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. You see, Moses is given this power, this ability to show a sign. And that sign was something that was impossible to do otherwise. It isn't as if Moses just did some sort of sleight of hand and was able to you know, cover his hand in powder and then put it back in the other part of the cloak and then dust it off. This wasn't the type of action that Moses was doing. He wasn't like a pen and teller to the Hebrews, you know, doing some sort of magic on the side. He actually had a hand that was powerful, went into the cloak, came out, was destroyed, put back into the cloak, and was powerful again. And by powerful, I mean able, life, full of vigor. This is a prophetic act. 
it's not just a, a powerful act, it's not just a sign, but itself, that, that sign has something to say about what's going on to the people of Israel. These are not spectacles at all. They carry prophetic and spiritual significance. I want to look at the first example here with the sign of the rod, and then we'll look at the hand, and then finally we'll get to the final sign. Egypt, though raised by God through Joseph to become an empire, has become evil and oppressive, and they've joined in league with the serpent in the garden. If you remember, the serpent in the garden at the beginning of the Bible is identified with someone who is deceiving, someone who tricks Adam and Eve into taking something that was not right for them to take. And not only does he deceive them, he gets them to buy into his way of thinking. And so serpents often take on this notion of craftiness or, or um, it's hard to even think of an idea because the word serpentine is, is the, the synonym you might reach for. It's, it's the term which describes those who are weasley. They're easy to get away from. And so as Moses begins to lay this rod down, this staff of authority that he lays down, it's, it's a prophetic symbol in that it's demonstrating who the Egyptians really are. But ultimately, Moses takes the, uh, through the plagues that are wrought with his rod, will make Egypt serve his own purpose, Yahweh's own purpose. You see, Moses, in laying down the rod, not only foreshadows Christ, but also foreshadows what's going to happen. That is, the Egyptians are oppressing the people of God. And they are trying to work their way away from God. Pharaoh is constantly hardening his heart. And yet the taking up the, the serpent by the tail is Moses demonstrating that Egypt ultimately will be made to serve the purposes of God. At the end of the account in Exodus, and even in this promise, God says to Moses that the people of Israel will plunder the Egyptians. They're given gold and silver and precious clothing, which later on in the story we'll find out is actually used to adorn the temple. Now the point of that is not in order to show that that the people of Israel cheated the Egyptians, but rather that the glory that God gave Egypt, Egypt had turned to her own purpose and had oppressed the people of God instead of treated them favorably. Remember, the point of the account with Joseph is that without Joseph's presence, the Egyptians and the rest of the world would have succumbed to the famine. The empire would have never existed in the first place, and yet they take these people, the, the sons and brothers of Joseph, and they take them and they oppress them in harsh slavery when they ought to have treated them nicely. And so God vindicates his people and judges those who are the oppressors and evil. We would do well in this country to heed this warning. Similarly, Egypt is a nation full of power and might. They have the strong hand, if you will, but Yahweh himself it says he will stretch out his hand against them and he will cause them to become nothing. That is the withered hand. So what I'm saying here is that this symbol that Moses was doing is a prophetic declaration that though Egypt rests in her you know, pride of being a military power, being an economic power, she will come to nothing. And simultaneously, at the same time, though that they're world power, Yahweh will absolutely destroy their pantheon of demon gods. Something that is a, a wonderful study if you're, uh, if you, especially if you have a high school age student or if you're just hungry to read more of the Bible, is to look at the various plagues in, in the Exodus and to compare them to the various gods that the Egyptians worshipped. Almost each one of the plagues is a foil or it's, it's a mockery of one of the gods. Um, 
There's a deep poetic irony to each of the plagues, if you will, which ultimately will show up in this final sign as we're going to look at it. Likewise, just as the Egyptians who have a strong hand will become nothing, so also God is going to take the Hebrews, who are a very small and insignificant people with no power, no might, no chariots, no swords, and he will bring them out of Egypt and they will become a strong hand again. He will cause them to be a people who builds his house and brings a light to the Gentiles. And so understanding the, the biblical metaphor of the hand being representative of work and power and might, we can understand the prophetic symbolism of what Moses was commissioned to do by God. Remember, these are not signs that are initially given to Egypt. These are signs given to the people of Israel. They are given in order that they might believe that Yahweh is able to do what he promises. So Yahweh gives Moses a final third sign, two or three witnesses being to confirm the matter at hand. I, if you've ever heard one of my sermons, you've probably heard that motif, that in the Bible there are two or three witnesses to establish every fact or matter. That is God's command for the judicial and ethical proceedings in the people of God. And in fact, what kind of blew me away last night, I'm actually thinking about writing a book on this subject, parenthetically, and what blew me away last night was I had never seen this before, but not that two or three is two different groupings. First, you have the two that are like each other, and then you have the third that is unlike the two, but says the same thing as the two. And for the first time I had seen this, over, though I had seen it a hundred times before, I had not really recognized this fact, but it's quoted two times in the Old Testament and one time in the New. And so even that idea is confirmed two or three times. The Bible is amazing. So he says finally at the third time, he says, if they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some of the water from the Nile and pour it out on the dry ground. And the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. This is an amazing system that God has given to the people of Israel. He gave them signs and witnesses that were not only powerful in themselves, they were not only amazing in themselves, but they had extremely important significance. When the, when the people of Israel would have seen these things done by Moses, they would have thought to themselves, what is the meaning of this? They would not have just seen it like we see things today, you know, take a vine or a Snapchat and throw it up online and say, oh, this was cool. They would have meditated on the purpose of these signs. And I believe that even this third sign has a deep, profound significance. The Nile is the very lifeblood of the nation. It is a symbol for all of Egypt. When you think of Israel, you think of, for example, certain rivers. One of them would be the Jordan River being an important river. When we think of Brazil, we think of the Amazon River. It is the lifeblood of Brazil. And in fact, a lot of the tribes identify themselves, even throughout the world, naming themselves the same name as the river that they're near. That's why we're in the Miami Valley and the tribe was the Miami Indians. That's why our name is, in this state, Ohio, River of Life, or, you know, Moving River. The point being that the Nile was a pseudonym, or it was a um, metonym. It was, it was a word that was interchangeable for Egypt. They were people of the Nile. So the final sign, therefore, and the first plague, which will ultimately become, is a shadow of the death that comes in the last plague, that the Nile itself will be filled with blood, that Egypt will run with blood so much that it will come into the river, and it will 
overtake the river. In the context of Mark's gospel, therefore, Christ is presented as this new Moses, bringing once again plagues on Egypt, but this time Egypt has changed names, if you will. We'll see that in a second. Christ is presented as this new Moses, and he comes not to deliver all of Israel, because all of Israel, as we know from Paul, is not all of Israel, but rather he comes to, remain, uh, to redeem and pull apart a special remnant out of the larger context of the nation. We see this over and over again in the Old Testament where a certain small group of people within Israel commit treachery against Yahweh and the rest of Israel is spared even though some of them are judged. This happens in each exile. This happens during the time of judges. This happens during the various battles when Joshua is bringing them into the land. This is not a new idea in the New Testament, but it is an idea which ultimately finds its final fulfillment in Christ. Christ comes to redeem a remnant of people out of the larger nation, which now is not any more like Israel itself, but has become like Egypt completely. Earlier we saw this, and Christ is going to, I, I mentioned that it would be seen again, just as Moses was in the wilderness attending Jethro's flock, visited by the angel of the Lord, after Christ's baptism, Christ himself goes into the wilderness. And Mark says he was with the wild animals, and then it says, and he was ministered to by angels. And so really early on in, this, in the way that Mark uh, records his gospel, he's beginning to use the events that were true in Christ's life to accurately and authentically say, Christ is the new Moses. You see, Mark understands, it's like music, for example. You, many of you, even if you're not classical music scholars or appreciators of fine music, you might know Beethoven's Fifth Symphony, right? How, do, how does it go? Dun-dun-dun-dun. Dun-dun-dun-dun. That is how Mark is writing. You see, Moses was the first, dun, 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 dun. And Mark then says of Christ, dun, 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 dun. And that, that right there, you need a lot more bass than I can achieve right now. Because Christ is coming to rot plagues against those who are oppressing his people. Christ is going to deliver his people. Mark is able to write in this way because of not only his understanding given to him by the Holy Spirit of God, but also because the father was sovereignly superintending a meaning through his son's action in his ministry. That is what I mean when I say, Father, let us recover the apostolic hermeneutic. That's what it means to see the glory of Christ in each passage. So Moses was commanded to announce deliverance to the people and to command obedience to Pharaoh. Christ, like, Christ likewise seeks out the sick and the sinners and commands the Pharisees to repent. This is the exact same structure. And unfortunately for some of the Pharisees, most, they, like Pharaoh, harden their heart. I was following, uh, I've, I've been in touch with a number of different theologians across the internet. I call them my Twitter friends because they're not really my friends. They don't know who I am but I really like them, and I hope that if we did meet, we would be friends. I was, reading, I was reading a theologian's paper from about eight or nine years ago, and at this time, the person was still a student. But the, the man's name is Brad Littlejohn, which is a great name. I mean, Littlejohn is a great name. And he was actually, he wrote a paper on the, the narrative structures of Mark and how they were contrasting with Egypt. Now, this isn't a new idea to Brad Littlejohn. He didn't invent that, nor did I. It's as old as, as Christian hermeneutics is old. 
but, but his point was that in English, the, even the words sound similar. You see, we have Pharaoh and we have Pharisees. And so in his paper, in air quote, or in quotes, he put the word Pharisees as kind of a mnemonic device for his readers to say that these people are just like Pharaoh. They encounter an act or a sign or a wonder of God, and then they harden their hearts. And you see, this is absolutely God's intention through the ministry of Christ. Throughout the Gospel of Mark, therefore, Christ's mission is to announce the arrival of the kingdom of God and a sweeping and cleaning of the house of God. The people of Israel were considered to be Yahweh's house. It wasn't just that Yahweh resided in a temple. His desire, and in fact, we see this throughout all the Old Covenant, was that he would be amongst a people. And yet, at this time, even though Christ himself is the tabernacle of God, what does Christ say of his own reception in Israel? He says, the Son of Man does not have a place to lay his head. That's not a thing that is supposed to tell you to sell your house and live like a bum. The point was that he had nowhere to live. There was nowhere where Christ was able to find a home and a reception. Each city cast him out over time. That was why he was able to pronounce the woes on the different capitals of the various regions of the, of the country because they hated him. We think of Christ's death on the cross as this just really unfortunate thing that some of the Pharisees and Sadducees conspired together and got the Romans to agree with, but we forget that the mob was there crying out as well. There was a small remnant of faithful Jews who understood that Christ was the Messiah and they truly worshiped Yahweh and repented through the baptism of John and received the coming of the day of the Lord. But most did not. Christ's death, therefore, was not a conspiracy in, this, in the dark. It was a totally approved national, it was a holiday. It was something that they all celebrated and were okay with. And so Jesus comes in order to announce the kingdom of God, to announce deliverance over the people, and then to sweep and clean the house of Israel so that there might be a remnant to be pulled out of her. At the same time that Christ is doing this, the leadership itself aligns against the work of Christ, showing itself to be just as oppressive as Pharaoh. Each time Christ comes to do an act of ministry, the bad guys, as it were, the bad guys, the Pharisees and Sadducees, show up and not only accuse Christ of sin in the act, they also accuse him of sin in his motive. They accuse him of testifying of himself in an unrighteous way, in a non-glorious way, but rather lying or puffing himself up to be something that he's not. And I, I want you to see that this is not just a circumstantial confrontation. This is an intentional confrontation that Christ brings to the Pharisees. Now, when I say that, sometimes we think that God is a harsh God and God is some sort of God that is uh, just out to do harm to those who are away from him. Now, it is true that God judges the evildoer and the sinner. That it was one of the glorious things that we sang this morning, that the, the eyes of sinful men cannot see the glory of God. They're blind in their understanding. They're not able to perceive God as righteous, nor therefore are they able to repent. Nevertheless, we cannot superimpose our morality on the actions of God. And so when, when I say that Jesus brings the battle to the Pharisees, he does it in a way that he hopes to, through mercy, open the eyes of some, all the while condemning those who will not repent. 
The same accusation is leveled against God in the entrance into the land through Joshua. They say, how could these people be so evil as to merit destruction and and the ban? And we've already covered the reasons why that's an insufficient claim. But the point is to see that Christ is not the God of the New Testament, which is, you know, all nice now. And in in the Old Testament, God was all mean back then. Christ brings this battle to the Pharisees in order that the word which proceeds out of his mouth, that sharp sword, would be able to divide between those who will repent and those who won't. In order that those who repent will not be caught up in the judgment. Christ's word is always a delivering word, delivering some to condemnation and delivering some to the freedom of the sons of God. So, Christ's signs, therefore, are not just an act of mercy showing the heart of the Father, although they are, They do demonstrate the nature of the Father's heart to restore and to heal, to deliver those from evil spirits. That is ultimately a revelation of the Father and and an accurate description of life in the kingdom of God. Nevertheless, Christ does these things with a twofold meaning, to show the heart of the Father and also provide an indictment against those hypocritical religious leaders. He accomplishes... That, that's probably where we get this idea, two birds with one stone, ultimately is probably talking about Christ. The Father anoints Christ with power for this express reason, to bring a sword to divide those who are faithful from those whose hearts are hardened. So Christ, in doing this, is accused first by the people of God, uh, sorry, the, the, the Pharisees. Because Christ will ultimately bring his people into a new promised land, because that's the theme of the Gospels, it makes no surprise that the second confrontation in the book of Mark is about the nature of the Sabbath. And we see this quite clearly. There's been one confrontation earlier in Mark, and this is the second confrontation. And here we see the Pharisees accuse Christ. So just as Moses and Aaron battle the Egyptian magicians and enchanters, Christ and his disciples have to defend themselves against the attack of the Pharisees and Sadducees. That is what I'm uh, referring to when I'm saying Christ is like a new Moses. And the interpretive scheme works each place. It works back and forth. And so we understand that Christ is in this defensive mode, and yet at the same time he's demonstrating the need for the Pharisees to repent. In Mark 2, verses 23 through 24, one Sabbath he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. Verse 24, the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? So the Pharisees accused the disciples of doing work on the Sabbath, calling them transgressors and implicating Christ as a rabbi who tolerates sin. You see that their accusation is not even clear enough in order that they would just come out and say it. Like the serpent of old, they weave their true meaning through layers of obfuscation and subtlety. In calling them the disciples, those who are breaking the Sabbath, he declares, they declare to Christ that you ought to be confronting and and rebuking your disciples. Why are you not? And in fact, this is the exact same thing that happens in the earlier part of Mark when the people come and ask Jesus, saying, the disciples of John fast and the Pharisees fast, why aren't your disciples fasting? See, they're accusing Christ of rabbinical malpractice. They're accusing Christ of not upholding the law. Because what they've done is they've perverted the law from its original intention. Their strict legalism, therefore, was not a keeping of the law. 
This is something that many Christians fail to understand about the New Testament. They say, well, Christ is continually speaking against the law. And we, what we do is we buy into the wrong side of the story as to what the law is. We take up the position of the Pharisees and Sadducees saying, oh, well, Christ, surely you guys were picking grain on the Sabbath. It's an interesting note, uh, parenthetically here, that what Christ's disciples were doing, picking grain from the Sabbath as they went along, in law speak, or in the law of God itself, was not identified as labor. It was actually a provision given to those who were poor. They were able to glean from the edges of fields as they walked through. The Bible says that if you go through your neighbor's vineyard, you're able to take grapes and put them in your mouth, but you're not able to take grapes and put them in your bag, because it's harvesting versus doing something that is sustaining of life. And that law, which is quite clear and explicit in the Old Testament, ought to have been understood by the Pharisees, but they didn't understand it. And therefore, they pervert the law of God from its original understanding, that is to uphold and value life and support life, and they pervert it to something which they are able to use to control the people with heavy chains and harsh bondage. Christ does not at all teach against or abrogate the law, for he himself upholds it through all of his teaching and his explicit witness. In the Sermon on the Mount, he says, <clears throat> he says that those who teach to lessen the law or abrogate it are least in the kingdom of God. So if he said that, how would he himself be, in this passage, teaching against the law? Rather, he is teaching against their interpretation of the law. Verse 25, he said to them, have you never read? This right here is an indictment. The Pharisees prided themselves on scriptural knowledge. And so what he's saying to them is, because you have blindness, your reading of the scriptures is not profiting you anything. Have you never read what David did when he, and, when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him? Notice that this is Christ's hermeneutic himself. He compares himself to David and his disciples to the companions of David. You see, this is not something that, that Christian theologians invent after the closing of the canon. This was Christ's original mode of operation. Verse 26, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for any but the priest to eat. What he's essentially saying is that he is the one to sum up the themes of deliverer, judge, prophet, priest, and king. He ultimately is the greater son of David. Now, that's not our focus today, but the argument could be made exactly here in that, that same vein. Christ rather exposes the hardness of their heart, showing their false religion as a spiritual oppression of man. You see, he's saying that their reading of the scriptures not only does not profit them, but they actually pervert it from its original intention and oppress people with it. So Christ therefore teaches the true intention of the Sabbath as a restorative and recreational element for man. He's, his whole point is that not only do you have the facts of the matter wrong, because this is gleaning and not eating, it's not harvesting, but you also understand the purpose of the Sabbath in the wrong way. The Sabbath was not in order to diminish man, but rather in order to glorify it. The Sabbath, in the original intention and giving of the law, was God's capstone on his creative work. God works for six days and takes a seventh day and rests on his labors and appreciates the beauty of his creation. He overlooks his creation and calls it all very good. 
This is what men are supposed to do. This is what the Sabbath was given to man for, is to look over your labor and to rest. Without the Sabbath, we would be like machines, never stopping, always seeking to be making a little bit more profit, increasing our margins, sweetening up the return. And yet God himself teaches his people to have a pattern of work and a pattern of rest. That is what Christ is ultimately saying. It's not in order for you to form some strict legalism to perform a work before God, but rather to recognize his blessing on the weak. Verse 27, he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the son of man is Lord even of the Sabbath. What he means there is is not therefore that Christ has the authority to change the intention of the Sabbath. The son never speaks against the, the word of the father because he is the word of the father. So Christ is not saying, I have the authority to change the Sabbath. He's saying that you don't even understand the Sabbath at all, and I, as Lord of the Sabbath, have the right teaching. I have the right understanding, which is life and not death. So Christ graciously teaches the true intent and spirit of the law. That's what Christ is doing in these passages. He's simultaneously indicting their understanding and giving them a chance to repent, which we'll see here in just a second. So the Pharisees pride themselves on their understanding of the law, but Christ is demonstrating that they do not understand it at all. And this is really one of those passages or one of those places in the Bible where the chapter break really does come at an unfortunate location. Because here, the same day is taking place. I believe this is the same account. As in right after they got through the field, they arrived at the synagogue just a few minutes later. So Jesus, as he enters the synagogue, asks them a question which ought to be right up their alley, so to speak. This ought to be something that they are able to understand and and rattle off. This is like asking a kindergarten to count to five, a kindergarten student to count to five. Or perhaps maybe a better illustration would be to have a calculus student count to five. They were masters of the law. They called themselves lawyers, scribes, Pharisees. They understood the Bible supposedly perfectly. That was their whole point. They established themselves as rabbis, as teachers of Israel, people who were able to explain mysteries. And so he calls the man with the withered hand in the synagogue to come to him. And then he says to the Pharisees, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? Now, you ought to understand this is like a softball pitch to Mark McGuire. He's the latest sports guy I know. He, this, is, this is absolutely easy. Uh, Sammy Sosa. Same, same year, right? Uh, this is absolutely, this is, a, this is like a layup to Michael Jordan, okay? The point being, this, they should have been able to answer right away. Of course it's lawful to, to do good on the Sabbath, Right? So now we have to ask ourselves, why were they silent? And I believe that their silence is deeply relevant. The question to why they were silent is is able to be perceived if we poke it a little bit. They ought to know what the answer is. After all, this is concerning the Sabbath. This is not a simple, this is not like an obscure midrash Uh, type of question where they ask some complicated thing like what if a glass had recently touched a piece of cheese were you then able to use it a day later for meat even if you washed it properly well what if you didn't have water that day and you had to wash it with kind of like a mud is that you know an impure water would that still be permissible this was not an obscure law question 
it was not something that they would have been unable to answer if they only knew the information, but rather did not have the right understanding. They ought to have been able to answer immediately, and yet they understand that Christ's question highlights the problem in their method. His question highlights the very mode of interpretation that they were missing. The reason they ought to have been able to answer this question is quite clear. So if they begin to answer in their usual manner with more questions and qualifiers, conditions and exceptions, their duplicity of heart would have been revealed. If you go back and read any of uh, the, the various midrash uh, disputations from the, the rabbis, they always attack these problems. This is kind of their hermeneutic. They attack the problem or the question with a lot of exceptions. And they start to create this, um, I don't know how to phrase it, this uh, cloud around the original core of the question. And they put all these qualifiers and exceptions around it and get to the, they, they obfuscate in order to create themselves uh, an understanding in the people that they are the ones who are truly educated. This is what happens when theologians uh, you know, primarily keep people at a distance with hard and confusing terminology and they never open up the meaning of what they're actually saying. This is what we do unintentionally sometimes when we keep people at a distance from God. We do what the Pharisees do. We complicate the matter instead of getting to the core of the matter. And so if they began to debate the problem amongst themselves and they did that in front of Christ, then they knew that Christ would have seen through their attempts to weasel away. They're like that serpent, right? Who tries to avoid capture by weaseling his way away from the heart of the matter. Verse five, he looked around them at anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. I love Mark's understanding of the person of Christ here. He's angry and yet grieved at the same time. The level of torment in Christ's soul did not just come at the cross. It also came moment by moment throughout his ministry as he looked at people who ought to be near Yahweh and yet their hearts were far from God. And so Christ here is angry and yet grieving. He says to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. Christ's ang anger is therefore manifold. First thing that Christ is angry is they ought to know. The first reason that Christ is angry with the silence of the Pharisees is that they ought to know the right answer. After all, all of, Christ, all of God's law is to inform our ethical and judicial understanding. That is, their inability to answer shows that they are corrupt, both intellectually and morally. Christ does not divide true understanding from heart to head. He says both of them go together. The second reason is that in recognizing the dilemma that's in their heart and perceiving the distance between Christ's way of thinking and theirs, they, instead of repenting and begging for understanding and mercy and teaching, they choose to remain silent. Their choice to not answer is an answer itself. Christ is opening up a door of possible repentance and they shut the door themselves. They do not step through the moment and say to Christ, would that we knew we can't even come to, to an understanding of a simple matter in the 10 words, let alone something about the true intention and spirit of the law. By 10 words, I mean 10 commandments. They choose to stay silent, attempting to save face and retain their position and reputation as authorities in the people of Israel. 
So Christ intentionally chooses to restore the man's hand, calling to mind the power given to Moses. He shows, therefore, the Pharisees' need for repentance and their idolatry of the law and the false worship of a false god by making a god in their own image, not following the true god of the scriptures. That is, what I'm intending to say is that the perversion of the law that the Pharisees did was necessarily hand-in-hand with a creating of a different god of their own making. It isn't as if they tried to serve the one true Yahweh. They hated Yahweh, invented their own God of legalism, and they attempted to serve that God with something that Yahweh himself gave them, the law of God. Christ is seen by Mark, therefore, not just as the miracle worker, but as the true lawgiver, showing us how to interpret the law ethically and morally, arriving at the spirit of the law. Remember when Paul says the letter kills, but the spirit gives life? What he's saying is that a legalistic approach to the scriptures will destroy. But the right approach to the scriptures, the spirit of the law, enables you to understand. Now, again, Paul is not saying that the law is not worth reading. He's saying that it's only worth reading if you have the spirit of life. Without the spirit of life, you cannot understand it. So the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. Really quickly and parenthetically, this is now the third witness against the Pharisees and so the matter in the, in the book of Mark, and so the matter again is settled. They decide they want to kill him. So though, though he shows the Pharisees what is in their heart, they do not repent but harden it further. And so the question is, what does this have to do with you and me? Now, we could really quickly come in here and say that we ought to do battle against those who are legalists, and if we know any legalistic Christians around us, we ought to kind of encourage them to read this. You see, that's playing pitchfork with the Word of God. Have you ever heard this phrase? If you've ever been on a farm, you've got hay here, someone gives you hay, and then you throw it over your shoulder. Boy, I wish they were here today. (laughs) I've done this with my wife. I'm guilty. I'm sorry. I've done this with hundreds of people. Boy, I wish they were you know, this word really would have helped them. And yet I'm sitting there under the same condemnation because ultimately the Pharisees are something that's deeply relevant and at home with us. When we read the gospels, we often come to the gospels knowing already that the Pharisees are bad guys. You see, when you come to the scriptures, you have presuppositions. You have things that you believe beforehand when you arrive at the gospels. And the danger, therefore, is to, already knowing the end of the story, is to cast aspersions about who's playing what role in the scriptures and what possible meanings they might have to you. You already know who the bad guy is in the story, and so, therefore, our tendency is to immediately see the Pharisees as other than. They're the sinners over there. In fact, it's so common in English parlance, we often call something, someone a Pharisee. This is a culturally relevant idea in English. We we even dub some laws as pharisaical. And you will see even non-religious persons or non-Christian persons uh, out in the world, especially in journalism, use these sorts of terms like pharisaical or puritanical. These are words that are so commonly understood by English speakers that it's a part of our language. It's common shared heritage. So the sin of the Pharisees, therefore, is not their zeal for the law of God, but their own perversion of it while maintaining their own righteousness. They saw themselves as the ones who have it all together, incredulous at those who could not shape up. So the point of of what I'm 
getting to is this, that when we read the, the Gospels, if we read correctly at all, we ought to identify that we're the Pharisees. Now, some people take this too far, and they, they go off onto the other side of the ditch saying that they, you know, that woe is us, we can't repent, etc., etc. But the point of the Gospels is to highlight and identify the sin of the Pharisees in order to operate a chance for repentance. These Pharisees were completely ignorant of their need for grace and therefore didn't extend it to others. Can you identify in your own life something like this? Lord knows I can. The Pharisees create barriers between the common man and God, but wouldn't help their neighbor find him. This is like the, Pharaoh, the, the original story here with the Pharaoh commanding the people to make bricks without straw. This is the exact same thing that they're doing. So my, my point is this. If we always see ourselves on the side of Christ and the disciples and never identify with the Pharisees, we are reading the scripture wrong. In fact, we are just like the Pharisees all the time. So if we allow the scriptures to confront us, we see that far too often we take up their same line of thinking. Haven't you ever done this? Especially if you've been in a church for a long time where you see some brothers or sisters struggling and you think to yourself, man, I wish they could just get it together. I wish they could just get everything right in their life. Brothers, sisters, you're beginning to, to speak and think and look like a Pharisee. Failing to see our own need for Christ, we cannot repent, but there is grace as well. I mentioned this earlier, I alluded to it, but I want to present it here quite clearly. Christ's intention in confronting the Pharisees is not just to show their evil, but also to offer up a chance for repentance. And in fact, in the Gospels, though it's not focused on, and though it is just somewhat small, many of the Pharisees repent. In John 12, we see that many of the leaders begin to believe in Christ. Right before the stoning of Stephen in the book of Acts, it says that many of the leaders turned. A great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Even Paul himself is a sign of grace to us in that he was a Pharisee of Pharisees. In Acts 23, 6, he himself identifies as a Pharisee. And then finally, in the book of Galatians, he identifies himself a Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee par excellence. The point is this, that Pharisees can and must and need to repent. Even though the, that Christ showed the Pharisees what was in their heart, most did not. Nevertheless, the chance is there. We see Christ go to the cross petitioning the Father to forgive. And as he's asking the Father to forgive, he's looking down at Roman soldiers who put him there and Pharisees and Sadducees who were watching approvingly. That is the people that he and the people of God or the people of Israel who were crying out, crucify him, crucify him. He's looking over those sorts of people when he goes to the cross. So though Moses turned the Nile to blood, bringing only more death, Christ's death for us has become a life-giving fountain. This is why Christ is a much more excellent mediator, is that Moses, because he was not able to satisfy and finally put away sin, his actions just brought judgment. They accomplished a deliverance for the people of God, but it was not a final and full lasting deliverance. Nevertheless, Christ's death has become a life-giving fountain. Remember when Christ is pierced by the spear as he's on the cross after he has died, what comes out but blood and water together. This is what it means for us to turn the Christ. Therefore, as you come to the table today, you come 
not because of your own ability to be there. You don't come to the table today because you belong. You come to the table because of Christ's invitation. And then finally, as you come, you ought to recognize that Christ can save to the uttermost, even from the party of the Pharisees, which you have often been a part of. Let's pray. Father, we ask you that you would give us an understanding of your scripture that moves us to repentance. We pray that you would move on our hearts, which are often like Pharaoh, like the Pharisees and the Sadducees, often hard in our heart, often calloused to your word, unable to or unwilling to persist in hearing of it, often deaf to its original and true intention. We pray, God, that you would, like David prayed for, that you would dig out our ears, that you would somehow overcome heaven and earth in in order to get to the core of us. Father, you see the eyes of all men. There is nothing hidden from your sight. We confess that we have often been like the Pharisees and we have often identified ourselves as some other class of people and we have condemned those who are not like us. And we have thought about your word and righteousness as really needing to be applied to other people when we fail that we need it. We fail to see how you are often speaking to us and yet we think of our neighbor. God, we pray that you would give us true righteousness, that we would repent, that we would not just be hearers of the word, but also doers, that it would come to us like a sword cutting, but also like a surgeon's knife, able to restore and heal and remove the gangrene of sin and hypocrisy. We pray that your son would be glorified in us and that you would give us life as we come to the table. In Jesus' name, amen.